Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Free Culture Radio. Love in the Time of Fentanyl is a brilliant new documentary from PBS and Independent Lens. According to the PBS website, quote, As deaths in Vancouver, Canada reach an all-time high, the Overdose Prevention Society opens its doors, a renegade supervised drug consumption site that employs active and former drug users. Its staff and volunteers do whatever it takes to save lives and give hope to a marginalized community in this intimate documentary that looks beyond the stigma of people who use fentanyl and other drugs. End quote. It's brilliant and it's moving. And um, here in the city I call home, Portland, Oregon, there's going to be a screening of Love in the Time of Fentanyl on Saturday, March 18th. One of the organizers of that screening is Haven Wheelock, Drug Users Health Services Program Coordinator at Outside In, a local nonprofit. And Haven is on Zoom with me now. Haven, how are you doing? Good morning. Hi. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I um, it's uh, this you do really, really awesome work, and it is such an honor to have you. Tell me about this. Tell me about this documentary. Yeah, this documentary is a beautiful, moving, inspiring film featuring some of my friends um, in Vancouver, BC, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to um, screen this here in Portland and have Ronnie. Gibby joining us, who is one of the um, people featured in the film. And so he was part of starting the Overdose Prevention Society in Vancouver. And he happened to be in Portland. And I was like, well, we should do a thing and <laughs> really highlight that work um, around harm reduction and around overdose prevention um, here um, for our folks. I know there's a lot of people really interested. You know, the overdose crisis is touching so many of us in so many ways and people are really looking for solutions and tools to help save lives and i think you know this is a space that in the u.s we're just starting to tip our toes into around having legal overdose prevention spaces um and so getting to highlight kind of how that work plays out and what that work looks like um, feels like a really important opportunity for our community. For the benefit of listeners, what is an overdose prevention site? Yeah, overdose prevention sites look a lot of different ways in a lot of places. Um, They are places where people can bring substances that they've obtained in the community and use them in community with folks um, to really address a lot of different needs. Um, Overdose prevention sites, the first one started in like the early 80s in Europe. Um, They initially were to prevent hepatitis C and hepatitis B transmissions, Um, but it basically allows people a place to use with people who can respond in the event of an emergency, who can also like help provide like social supports and healthcare supports to folks who are using drugs and really connect with people that are using to get them the things that they need to be healthy and safe. And, you know, they reverse a lot of overdoses. Um, Since the first program started in the early 80s, thousands and thousands of overdose events have been witnessed and there hasn't been a death in one of these spaces documented anywhere globally. We, the United States got its first legal overdose prevention sites in 
just over a year ago in New York City, two sites opened in New York. Um, and again, hundreds of overdoses have been reversed in that space. And again, no one died. Whereas if these people were using un in unsafe spaces and unsanctioned spaces, it, it many of them might have. Um, so it really is like a life-saving intervention that the United States is slowly coming around to as our crisis has gotten as bad as it is. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, but you mentioned a thing, and um, there's also a part in here in that uh, in that uh, in that little blurb I read out earlier, um, talking about community, and um, it, it sometimes people look at me funny when I talk about community building. Um, with people who use drugs, but um, uh, talk to me about talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the disease of addiction is incredibly isolating, right? And the way our war on people who use drugs and the drug war has perpetuated this idea that people who are using substances are somehow othered and outside of community, right? It's that they are oftentimes dehumanized, regularly criminalized, regularly like vilified. Um, and to me, it's really important. And the only things that I've ever seen that have been really helpful for people who are using drugs is bringing them in. And like bringing them into the community and building that community. And, you know, I've been working with people actively using heroin, methamphetamines and fentanyl for over 20 years now. And people still are shocked when I say that like the drug using community is a pretty tight knit group of people. Like they really are taking care of each other in ways that are really beautiful a lot of the time. Um, you know, when we look at our overdose reversal data from our naloxone program, like the number of times people are reversing overdoses on complete strangers in their community um, is something that I think people don't really expect to hear or see. Um, and people who use drugs are a part of our communities. They are like, they are their own community in that they are bound together by oppression and at the same time they are part of the larger community they belong in the larger community they are not external to that so for me it really like it is important to honor that like both the drug using community and the work that they do as well as like include them in part of the community as a whole because frankly we are <laughs> <laughs> well, you know exactly. Now, the the documentary, in fact, is just it's it's lovely. It it portrays, I think, a lot of that. The uh, the 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 OPS. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a drop in space. It's a it's very nurturing. It's very caring. It's very um, it's it it would feel kind of empowering. I think just because yeah. it's that I hate to sound like that. I mean, it's, it's but um, it, it's easy to internalize the criticisms that you hear every 
freaking day. And mm-hmm. it's um it's really good to have a place where you can maybe try to shed some of that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, while we do not allow people to use in our spaces currently, um, full disclosure, <laughs> calling it out legally, we cannot do that as of right now. Um, but, you know, we hear every day that like our drop-in spaces and our harm reduction centers are place like some of the only places people feel safe right it's like i hear regularly how comforting it is to be able to like have a conversation with a provider about drugs that doesn't include like any like messaging that doing drugs is not something someone should be doing right to be able to say out loud like this is what i'm doing and not have shame or judgment placed upon folks like it really does make a big difference in people's ability to connect with themselves and like and many people do want to change their behaviors but if they once they feel safe connecting with someone like asking those questions knowing that like you can ask me about treatment every day for the next five years and i'm never gonna like not answer your questions <laughs> or judge you for not like doing the plan that we spent time working on. Like I, we had a conversation and I'll have that conversation 500 times if it's the conversation you want to have. Right. Um, and really like having that space and that trust is part of the magic of how harm reduction works. Right. Um, I think a lot of times people think about harm reduction as like giving people stuff like Narcan and needles. And that is an important part of it, right? But like so much of the magic of the work that we do is about building relationships, creating safety, helping people feel worthy, holding out hope that like it like for people who, because of the way society treats the disease of addiction, don't feel like they have hope don't feel like they are worthy of change and people can't change behaviors if they don't feel worthy and so providing that humanity and reminding people of their like humanity and like it really does go a really long way to improve like health and plus people who use drugs are really fun (laughs) and nice (laughs) and like it shouldn't be you know when I say to somebody I'm really happy to see you and mean it like that I may be the only person that says that to someone in a week in a month um and I think that's like the goal of harm reduction really is to make sure that people feel cared for and loved regardless of what substances they are putting into their body. This is my conversation with Haven Wheelock, Drug Users Health Services Program Coordinator at Portland area nonprofit Outside In. We're talking about decriminalization, safe supply, safe consumption spaces, and the new documentary, Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Haven's hosting a screening of Love in the Time of Fentanyl at the Clinton Street Theater in Southeast Portland on Saturday, March 18th at 3 p.m. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Thank you. 
Welcome back. Let's continue that conversation with Haven Wheelock from Outside In. Earlier, you mentioned the war on people who use drugs, and um, and I, I formulate that specifically decriminalize people who use drugs because it's more than just decriminal uh, more than just changing the penalty for that simple possession offense it's really about decriminalizing talk to me about decriminalization what have you Oregon has Oregon has embarked on a grand experiment and it seems to be going well tell me about that yeah I mean so we decriminalize small small amounts of drugs um almost two two years ago, two years ago, February, 2021, um, is when it went into effect. And it's really, you know, for me, I, I, I have a public health lens. I have a public health background. Um, I also have a public health degree, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, for me, this work has always been about how do we promote health and healing for people? Um, and how do we like lift up that people's like ability to be as happy and healthy as they can be and want to be, um, knowing that not everyone will achieve perfect health, including myself, um, <laughs> right? Um, that perfection is not the goal. Um, but it, it's just so clear to me how criminalizing people for substances for the disease of addiction um really is just harmful it just like being being incarcerated is not a health healthy like way to be right our jails and prisons are very sick places um in terms of health <laughs> like people who get out like there's studies showing that like when people get out of jail they are like much more likely to die within the first month of being out um and so you know, I really, and I've seen the harms of like what criminal offenses and criminal backgrounds have on folks who are trying to heal. And, you know, I have friends who've been turned down for jobs, who've not been able to get housing, who can't get student loans, who can't like really do the things that they need to do because of possession offenses. And so when we embarked on decrim, it really, in my mind, was always about how do we promote health and healing and improve like how do we promote health and healing well we don't put people in jail right um and it's pretty amazing to see the decrease in arrests that we're seeing around drug possession right we are just those are just a few chances for folks to like start off on a better footing if they if if stopping using is what they want to do or changing their relationship with the substances they're using or changing the substances that they're using are something people want we shouldn't saddle them with extra burden and punishment in order to like from punishing people to be healthy is not an effective strategy and so it's been it's been really fascinating and exciting to see how all of this is rolling out and how it's all working. And, um, you know, it take, it's it's a slow process. Right. I think a lot of people wanted decriminalization to be this magic bullet that solves all the things and that they wanted, you know, this investment of cannabis revenue into the system to instantly fix the system. And 
there are many people who are disappointed that it wasn't a magic wand. Um, I am a realist and knew it wouldn't be a magic wand. We can't like dismantle a hundred years of the war on drugs and messaging around the dehumanization of people who use drugs in two years. That's just not how these things work. Um, but it does feel like a great, to me, it feels really exciting to see what's coming and to see hope in a way that feels very different than the previous 18 years of my career doing this work. Like, I feel more hopeful. Like, while things are really hard and fentanyl has, like, is ravaging our communities and breaking hearts and, like, it is devastating, I actually feel more hopeful about this work than I have in a really long time. And when I talk to my colleagues doing this work in other parts of the country, it really does, like, Decrim has a big part of why I feel hopeful in a way that many of my like colleagues in other places struggle with that hope because we do have this investment that is ramping up and building up. And like the state of Oregon has committed and voted for a health-based approach to addiction and is really like committed to trying to tackle this in a way that is about dignity and health and community um, that feels different than many places in the country. I got to admit, the margin of victory was uh, was was pretty darned astounding. I was, um, yeah. I I know, Doug. If I'm being honest, I never thought it was going to pass. <laughs> right when I signed up for this, like I was like, we live in a world where, you know we've criminalized drug use for so long. I, I wasn't, I was like, well, we're going to have to try a few. I mean, we had to try a few times with cannabis legalization. We had to try a few times. Like if we're going to have to try a few times to get decrim done, might as well try now. Like this is swing number one. Um, I, I was never until they called the election <laughs> election night, I was not confident it was going to pass. Um, Hey, you're talking to somebody who worked on Ballot Measure 5, the Oregon Marijuana Initiative in the 1986 election cycle. I'm with you. You got to, you know, oh, but you might lose. Well, you know what? There's no debate right now. If we get this on the ballot, there's a debate. Mm-hmm. Normal was moribund back in those days. People didn't even know if it still existed. My boss from the Oregon Marijuana Initiative, John Sajo, was the one who got plastered on the front page of USA Today in 1986. Is there a marijuana debate? Why, yes, there is. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Now, decriminalizing people who use drugs involves a lot of stuff as you were going through some of the different collateral consequences to any kind of an arrest, let alone a conviction, thanks to Google and other search engines are available. News of an arrest is sometimes easy to find if you're not rich enough to bury it. Um, But more than that, there's other things that are needed, and one, as we learned with, as we learned with weed, um, is getting a, a, a safe, legal supply. Um, safe, tested, quality, you know, potency, all that stuff known. Um, now, 
safe supply is a concept. Safer supply is, um, is in a way, describes steps towards that with, uh, you know, which can range from prescription um, morphine through... prescription fentanyl through um through things like testing um what do you think about safe supply safer supply and safe and safe supply i have a lot of thoughts on that like one we know that because substances are not many substances are not legal um it leads to a lot of variation in the supplies of the drugs we have it leads to a lot of risk involved right like when you don't know i mean part of why alcohol is as safe as it is to consume is because you know that your shot of vodka is not going to make you go blind or kill you right that wasn't true during prohibition (laughs) right like when we would think back to like alcohol prohibition alcohol was pretty dangerous to consume and a lot of people died because they were taking substances that were not safe to consume. Um, and so the I, the concept in practical terms, right, giving people substances that we know are safe, that we know are regulated, that are dosed in a way that is consistent, regardless of what that is, like people can change their use. Drugs can be very strong. And as long as they're always very strong, you'll know how much to take, right? Um, the problem and so in an ideal world i would love to operate and be able to like have safe supply of substances that being said in the u.s context where our healthcare systems and our chemical companies and our pharma in general is for-profit entities um i actually really And there are many a harm reductionists who are going to hate me saying it out loud, but (laughs) this is not an overarching harm reductionist take on this. But until we can do something about our for-profit healthcare, I don't want to hand over the manufacturing of dicetylmorphine to the Sackler family, right? I don't trust that when we still have millions of Americans who don't have health insurance, that giving the means of production of these substances to these companies that can price it wherever they want to um, is going to lead to people actually having a safe supply. Um, And maybe I'm just small-minded in my thinking because of my healthcare background, but I really struggle to think of how and and maybe there are more creative people than like I am, but I really struggle in our context to think of how we can do say like it's different with things like cannabis and psilocybin, things that people can grow, right? Where like if I want to grow some marijuana plants, I could. Um, well, not really, because I'm bad at plants, but um <laughs> but you know, like that feels very different than like me making my own cocaine. I don't know how to process that. I am not a chemist in that way. Right. And so it would take a for-profit company or maybe a nonprofit company to create these things. Um, But I just, I worry that in the U S context, it's going to turn into like people with means have 
the ability to use safe supplies, people without means don't. And that equity question is something that like, I think about a lot, like even looking at like Oregon's measure 109 and our like medical psilocybin that is rolling out right now, who's going to have access to those therapies? Because Medicaid is not going to pay for it, right? And so um, really, I think it's a, like, if we were, like, when I think about, like, safe supply and, like, dicetal morphine programs in Canada, um, which I, like, I feel better about those, (laughs) right? Because everyone has access to it that wants it or needs it. Whereas in our context, we have so many people who could benefit from methadone, could benefit from medication to treat substance use and like safe supply in that way that can't actually get it um, because their health insurance can't pay for it or won't pay for it, like those kind of things. So um, I think as a theory, I think it's great. I think the US context and our ability to like do that is much harder. Um, I do think it's really exciting to see um, Outside In just got our mass spectrometer earlier last year. We're about a year into running that program. Um, You know, I think that there are ways to make safer supply and like help people understand what may be in their substances um, and that and to see that work expanding across like more and more harm reduction programs are moving in the direction of having better equipment to be able to like tell people and help people make informed decisions about what they have in their substances. And I think that that's great. I also think, I don't think it's a panacea to like, there's a lot of pros and cons. It's a lot of caveats, a lot of like, we're making this up as we go along. So that what we're telling you today about fentanyl test strips might not be true tomorrow, um, kind of, you know, things. So if there was an easy answer to fix all of the things, we would have done it already. Um, but like having more tools in our tool belt and like helping people have access to them, I think is really important work. Um, and back to like, many of the overdose prevention sites in Canada um, are actually running these um, mass spectrometers in their spaces as well so that they're able to like, before someone uses a substance, able to like at least know and make an informed decision about how to use, when to use, where to use. That was my conversation with Haven Wheelock, Drug Users Health Services Program Coordinator at Portland area nonprofit Outside In. Find them on the web at OutsideIn.org. Haven is hosting a screening of Love in the Time of Fentanyl at the Clinton Street Theater at 3 p.m. Saturday, March 18th. Details and directions at the theater's website, cstpdx.com. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Many thanks to my guest, Haven Wheelock. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare and is used with permission of the artist. 
Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. <laughs>